all you have. You're now tuned in to the caucus race. So just sit back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darth Vader has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Hey there, Interstellar Party people. It's your fun and lovable host, Kyle, and you are now tuned in to the most epic audio experience in the galaxy, Star Wars Audio Archives. It's time to unleash your inner Jedi and to have fun like you've never had before. Hold on tight, because today's episode will take us on a journey into the Star Wars universe. Let's join forces with legendary heroes, feel the power of the Force, and create unforgettable memories with our fellow fans. So let's dive in and get ready for an epic party. May the fun be with us all. Master, I am ready to begin again. Seventeen-year-old Mina Ra'at stood in the center of the Academy's combat simulator. The one the students called the pain pipe, wiping the blood from his split and swollen lip. He felt no pain now, only a burning desire to attack and avenge what had been done to him. The fact that the damage had been inflicted by an automatic system as part of his training didn't matter at all to Ra'at. He was angry, and his anger made him strong. Up above, Sith Combat Master Zat Ruakin sat back inside the control booth, one hand resting on the wraparound suite of controls. Though he was human, Ruakin was built more like an aqualish. Bald, bulky, and broad across the shoulders, his wide olive-skinned face pinched into a perpetual scowl like stapled bundles of oiled suede. The hour was late, and he and Rat were the only ones in the simulator. Hurakan, like Blademaster Shackweth, had been teaching here at the Academy for decades, and he had seen students like Rat come and go. Acolytes, who seemed to require little or no sleep, who insisted on continuing their training late into the night, sometimes into the morning, and he'd seen how it caught up with them in the end. After a moment's consideration, he tapped the intercom. That's enough for tonight, Horakin said. No. Rat glowered up at him with red and baleful eyes. I want to go again. Horakin rose from behind the control deck and stepped forward so that the apprentice could see him through the transparasteel window. You defy me? No, master. Rat's tone was only slightly mollified, a symbolic obeisance to the master's authority. I only wish to train under the same regimen as Rance Lusk. Hurakan nodded to himself. He'd expected as much. From the moment he'd arrived here, Lusk had set the pace for the Academy's most driven pupils, all of whom wanted to fight, train, and study as intensely as he did. What none of them seemed to understand was that there could only be one Lusk and those who challenged him found themselves sharing the fate of Nictor, among others. Still, Master Harakan had to admit that he found Ra'at's ambition intriguing. Ra'at was easily the smallest in his class, wispy-haired and fine-featured, and two years of training hadn't added more than a few ounces of muscle to his spindly frame. But he had deep steel in him, a kind of gritty, semi-psychotic rage and a willpower that drove him to do whatever was necessary to get ahead. He also had some very peculiar ideas. It was Ra'at, after all, who had started the rumors that Darth Scabras himself was abducting students and taking them up to the tower in an effort to find one powerful enough to succeed him. 
He'd argued the case so successfully that some of the students, and even a few of the masters, wondered if he might be right. Now Harakin wondered if he had finally grasped Ra'at's ultimate goal. He touched the intercom again. All right, then. Once more. Without so much as a nod of acknowledgement, Ra'at dropped back into fighting stance, shoulders squared, jaw set. It was as if he'd known all along that the master would acquiesce. All right, then, Huracan thought. Let's see how good you really are. He tapped in a sequence of commands and watched the simulator come to life below him. An automated series of heavy swing arms barked out from either side, each one of them two meters wide, closing in so that Ra'at had to jump to avoid being crushed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. He dived between them easily before going into a tuck and roll, successfully dodging the third obstacle, a spring-loaded picador pike five meters long that thrust itself unexpectedly downward from the ceiling. Harakin nodded again. It had been the pike that had caught Ra'at last time. Now he was faster. Are you fast enough, though? That's the question, isn't it? How about when you can't see? Picking up a pair of thermal lenses from the counter beside him, Harakin adjusted them over his eyes, then reached over and switched off the lights. Darkness swallowed the room, vast and total. Harakin flicked on the goggles. His vision helioscoped into a hundred brilliant variations of fluorescent green before resolving itself into focus, and he leaned forward with keen interest. Down below, the now-blind Ra'at stopped in his tracks, processing what had just happened. And in that second, the wall behind him burst open in a whistling array of heavy rubber whips, slashing into air. Ra'at jerked forward, but it was too late. The whips drove him to his knees. Harakin saw the apprentice's face clench, his lips drawn back in pain. It's over, he thought, and reached to switch the lights back on, but it wasn't. Ra'at was on his feet again instantly, jumping clear of the whips. Hurakan immediately realized that the apprentice was no longer hampered by vision or lack thereof. Now he was relying entirely upon the force. When the swing arm came down again, Ra'at reached up, grabbed it, and actually held on, a move that the Sith Master hadn't seen before, even from Lusk, riding it all the way up to the ceiling. At the apex of its arc, he let go, twisting and launching himself headlong through open space to catch hold of the spring-loaded rod as it came spiking out of the wall. It was a move of unprecedented grace and absolute precision. Ra'at spun himself around the rod once, twice, three times, building speed, and fired himself directly at the window of the control booth. Master Harakin jerked backward. Ra'at slammed into the transperisteel with both hands, actually clinging there for a split second long enough for Harakin to see the student's face staring straight in at him. Then he dropped. Harakin whipped off the goggles and turned on the lights. 
Light roared across the room, filling every corner. He saw Ra'at standing down below, his face flushed, shining with sweat, shoulders rising and falling with the effort of catching his breath. Despite his obvious exhaustion, the apprentice's face was almost incandescent with leftover adrenaline. When he saw Harakan coming down the stairs, his eyes filled with expectation, awaiting the Sith Master's judgment. Interesting, Harakan said. Tomorrow, we'll see if you can do it again. Ra'at blinked at him. Master! Harakan looked around. What is it? Lusk! In combat simulation, has he ever... The Sith Master waited for Ra'at to finish the sentence, but in the end the apprentice simply nodded and looked away. Tomorrow, he said. Walking back to the dorm with his cloak drawn up over his shoulders and his wounds throbbing in the frigid night air, Ra'at stopped and glanced back at the simulation bunker. He was aware of what the other students and masters said about him, how he was too small, too weak, enthralled to his own paranoid delusions. And he didn't care. Tonight, he'd shown Harakan what he was capable of. Soon, the rest would see. He stepped over a high snowdrift that had formed outside the library, making his way around the eastern wall of the building until he found himself in the shadow of the tower. It was snowing steadily, but Ra'at could still make out the tracks leading up to the tower's main entryway. Two sets of prints, along with the familiar tracks of the HK droid. Ra'at felt the requisite twinge of jealousy. The tracks in the snow meant that Lord Scabras had brought visitors here very recently. The Sith Lord had invited them into his sanctum, and they had stepped inside... Ra'at, who had never been inside the tower and could only imagine its secrets, wondered who the visitors had been. Lusk? Nictor? One of the masters? Slipping off his glove, Ra'at placed one bare hand directly on the closed hatchway, imagining for a moment that he could feel the power pulsating out from inside, power that he would do anything to possess. Someday, he thought... I'll go through there myself. Until then, he would keep practicing. It was after midnight in the Academy's main hangar. Finishing up the last of his maintenance chores, Pergus Frode found himself glaring at the Corellian cruiser still taking up space in the corner of the landing pad. He'd refueled the craft and kept its engines hot, as its pilot had demanded, but that had been several hours ago and there'd been no word from the bounty hunters. Now it was late, and he wanted nothing more than to shut things down, go back to his quarters, and collapse into his bunk. With a sigh, he went back to the hangar's control booth and sealed the hatch behind him. At least it was warm in here, a haven away from the wind. When he'd first taken over the job, almost ten standard years earlier, Frode had retrofitted the booth to meet his needs, installing a personal thermal convection unit for hot meals along with a data pad for his favorite hollow books and hollow mag. As a hired hand, he had no force powers and no particular allegiance to the Sith, per se. He'd only encountered Darth Scabrus on a handful of occasions. But the last and only time that he'd ignored orders to stay up and wait, 
he'd spent a week in lockup icing a broken jaw. Settling back with a reheated cup of Javarican espresso and a well-worn hollow of hot chips, Frode saw something flicker past the booth. He sat up and wiped a hole in the steamed-up glass peering out. The HK was standing there. Its photoreceptors focused in on him. Frode stood up and opened the hatch. Hey! The HK turned and looked back to him. Query, what is it, sir? How much longer are those guys going to be in the tower? Frode pointed at the cruiser. I mean, their ship's just sitting there, eating our fuel. Response, I suppose you ought to shut it down. But that guy, Dranach, said... Statement, he won't be coming back, sir. He or his partner. Frode blinked. What, you mean, like, ever? Response, that is my understanding, sir, yes. Pushing back his mission cap to scratch his head, Frode turned his attention speculatively back to the bounty hunter's vessel. You know, he remarked casually, a ship like that's got to carry a pretty sophisticated flight computer. Statement, I'm sure I wouldn't know anything about that, sir. The equipment of such vessels is not part of my programming, and... You don't think Lord Scabras would mind if I yanked her out, do you? The HK regarded him blankly. You know, set it aside. Scrap market value on that thing's not too shabby. Statement. I'm sure you could help yourself. The droid said with bottomless indifference, already turning away to go about its business. Settling his cap back on his head, Frode nodded and got his tools, whistling a little under his breath as he did so. Maybe, he thought, tonight would turn out well after all. Estizo Trace rolled over, drew in a deep, resigned breath, and lifted her head from the pillow. The small, nondescript sleeping chamber where she'd awakened had already begun to fill with soft, artificial light. Although she was all alone here, she could feel the orchid waiting for her down below, some two hundred meters away, but close enough to hear its voice quite clearly in her mind. Estizo, emergency... She sat up, pushing off her covers. What is it? What's wrong? My incubation chamber. Come, quickly. Realizing now what the voice must be referring to, she relaxed back down. Oh. Oh! Alarm flashed through the flower's tone. This is serious. I'll be down in a second. Hurry, please. Okay. All right. Hold on to your petals. I'll be down there in a minute. The orchid retreated in her mind, only marginally placated, as if still awaiting a formal apology. Honestly, Zoe didn't mind its presence in her thoughts. The bond that they shared was, after all, part of her identity, a Jedi in the Agricultural Corps, one of the talented handful whose psychic green thumb kept her here in the nurseries and labs of the Marfa facility. Marfa was a hothouse, its varying atmospheres, temperatures, and moisture levels all carefully maintained to foster the widest variety of interstellar fauna in this part of the core worlds. But it was the force sensitivity of Zoe and her fellow Jedi that drove the different species to their fullest potential. At 25, Zoe understood that there was innate value, 
even a kind of nobility in such things, nurturing every form of botanical life and encouraging every facet of its development and exploration. Rousing herself fully from the last lingering vestiges of sleep, she slipped into her robe and headed up the corridor to the refresher. The faint sense of unease followed her, an unwelcome remnant of some other unremembered dream. She dressed for the day, choosing her lab frock and hood from a rack of identical uniforms, attributing the tinge of restlessness to that same nameless malaise that sometimes waited for her upon awakening here on Marfa. Opting out of breakfast, she followed the concourse up to Beta Level 7. Marfa's planetary status was constantly shifting with the position of solar activity and galactic cloud patterns. But B7 was currently the busiest and most vibrant of the various cultivation and growth bays honeycombing Marfa's surface. Usually, most of her fellow Jedi could be found there in the mornings, starting their day with de facto meetings to update one another on progress and research, and share their immediate plans for the future. The turbolift doors opened on an eye-watering expanse of green, and Zoe stopped there as she always did, letting the great familiar cloud of humid warmth wash over her. The smells of countless different plants competed for her attention. Sap, fruit and flower mingling in a mind-boggling banquet of fragrances. Tilting her head back, she looked up on 150 standard meters of high-ceilinged vines and dangling root systems. All around were narrow, self-sustaining forests of succulents and subspecies, and high trellises overrun with loops and whirls of growth so varied in color and size that only through sheer day-after-day -day familiarity was she able to process it all. She could already feel them. Her mind tuned instantly to the internal hum of hundreds of different vegetative life forces, each vibrating according to its own particular emotion, some low and oscillating, others pulsing high and bright to match the explosions of flowers that sprang from their stems. Many of the plants were local enough that she recognized their greetings in her mind as she passed by. Zoe walked among them, allowing their rustling enthusiasm of leaves and stalks to distract her from the nagging tug of unease that had followed her up from below. Good morning, Hestizo. Wal Bennis was the first actual voice she'd heard this morning. A tall, soft-spoken man with calm brown eyes, the Jedi Aglab director was waiting for her behind the thick red stalks of a Malpaso tree with an extra cup of calf. Sleep well? Until the orchid woke me. Bennis handed her the cup. Any idea what's going on? I've got a pretty good guess. You do? Mm-hmm. That's good, then. He went distractedly back to his own work and then seemed to remember something. Oh, and Zoe, uh, when you get a minute, would you mind taking a look at the Pulsiferian moss colonies on B2? There seems to be some kind of secondary parasite growing in the soil. You always save the glamorous stuff for me. You're the only one who can understand it. The moss or the parasite? Both, I think. I'll take a look. 
She carried the calf across B7 until she'd reached the private incubation chamber in the far corner of the room. Deactivating the airlock, she stepped inside, resealing the door behind her. Finally, the orchid burst out. What took you so long? You're not the only plant on this level. She took her time checking the temperature and moisture readouts on the wall unit, making incremental adjustments to both, and then walked over to the only plant in the chamber, a small orchid with black petals and a thin green stalk, its fronds seeming almost to quiver with impatience. For a moment she stood sipping calf and looking at it. I was cold during the night, exceedingly unpleasant. Actually, I turned the temperature down in your incubation chamber, she told it. Almost a full two degrees on purpose. Why? I've been telling you for ages that you're a lot hardier than you thought. Now you know it's true. Fact is, you could probably survive a 20-degree temperature drop, maybe more, and you would have been just fine. That's cruel to test without warning. If I'd told you, then you would have gotten yourself all worked up over nothing. The orchid withdrew into sulky silence. As Flora went, it was one of the most force-sensitive species in the galaxy. The problem was that it knew it. Zoe put up with it anyway and most of the time she was happy to dedicate herself to studying its abilities and providing for its needs. Every so often, though, it needed to be reminded why it had endured for thousands of years. It was far more durable than it gave itself credit for. So, the orchid said now, what is it? Something's wrong. What now? Outside. Something's happening. Zoe reopened the incubator's hatchway and stepped back out. Standing motionless in front of the chamber, she realized several things simultaneously. First, that the initial sense of wrongness she'd been experiencing up until now had nothing to do with her work here on Marfa. Contrary to what she'd initially supposed, the feeling was emanating from an outside source, an interloper, something that clearly didn't belong here. It hadn't been a dream. It was an alarm. And second, despite the silence, she wasn't alone. So? The orchid's voice asked. What is it? Give me a second. She listened to the entire greenhouse with her ears instead of her mind. She heard no audible voices. But that was to be expected. Her fellow Jedi often worked for hours among their individual species without speaking a word. Much of their daily routine was accomplished in absolute silence. Pausing halfway down a long aisle overgrown with leafy stalks, Zoe looked up. Far overhead, she found what she was looking for, an 800-year-old panopticon willow a perfect specimen of organic surveillance draping its limbs in a dense canopy of emerald-dripping lace. Each bud was tipped with a tiny golden eye. Zoe placed one palm flat against the shaggy trunk, allowing its root strength to pulse through her, aware at the same time that the tree was embracing her as an equal, 
she felt her ground-level perspective surging up through its branches, spreading out along colonies of sharply focused eyes. Her vision shifted, wobbled, and became clear again. She was now gazing down at herself and the entire floor from far above, from the willow's point of view. The tree's branches shifted and Zoe felt a slight shimmer of cognitive dissonance as her perspective aligned itself, and she saw the familiar robed figure of Wall Binnis leaning face-first against the sinuous, downy-tufted trunk of a Malpassian squid pine. But Bennis wasn't leaning. He was slouched forward, motionless, his torso hanging at an unnatural angle, arms dangling at his sides, impaled by the spear that had been slammed through his back into the trunk of the tree. A long, dagger-shaped bloodstain ran from between his shoulder blades down his back, soaking through his belt. The cup of calf he'd been holding lay on the floor between his feet. Zoe realized that she could see Bennis's face. It hung ashen and slack, a dangling meat mask from which all life had fled. His blood spilled down the spear's rough-hewn shaft, and Zoe watched, with the willow's unblinking acuity, as a droplet formed at the end, grew heavy, and fell into the already congealing pool on the floor by his feet. Blip. Something rustled behind her in the leaves. Spinning around, her consciousness dropping back from the willow's branches into her own optic and auditory nerves, Zoe realized too late that she'd let her guard down. On the other side of the tree, somewhere just inside the thick green canopy, the rustling grew louder, closer. A branch snapped. Twigs crackled, trampled underfoot. Zoe felt the presence of this new thing, whatever it was, making its way directly toward her, no longer bothering to be quiet or stealthy. Fear took hold of her, vacuuming the air from her lungs. The buzz of plant emotion had fallen quiet, even the orchid was still, and the entire research level felt far larger and more desolate than it had just moments before. Glancing around, hearing only the faint click of her own throat, she suddenly wanted more than anything to run, but she was no longer sure which direction to go. The noises she'd heard on the other side of the tree now seemed impossibly to be closing in from all sides. She felt helpless, isolated, alone, except for the buzzing, weightless swarm of her own terror. A shape burst out of the green into full view two meters tall. The bulky, fur-shrouded torso stood well above her. The long, squinting face was inhuman, cheekbones and brow jutted forward. A pair of stained tusks pushed upward from the lower jaw. The eyes that glinted from beneath its forehead were shining and intent. It was a whippet, Zoe realized, the biggest she'd ever seen. Somewhere in his chest he gave a thick grunting sound that might have expressed anything from appreciation to disinterest. Zoe turned and fled. She had taken three steps when an arm the size of a load-bearing girder slammed sideways against her skull, spraying bright fragments of pain through the right side of her head. Her vision shattered into a wide field of star-rattled blindness. When the blindness cleared, she was on the floor, neck-deep in pain, looking up at the whippet, the underside of one horned foot plunging down to smother her face. She could smell him now, his pungent and claustrophobic-inducing stench like mildew and death. 
This time it occurred to her that the death she smelled might be her own. Pressure engulfed her skull, squeezing agonizingly as the mottled flesh of his foot covered her nose and mouth. A vacuum of fetid-smelling blackness sealed tight. Muffled from far away, she heard his voice for the first time. The Orchid. Zoe squirmed and felt the weight lift ever so slightly to allow her to answer. What? The Murakami Orchid. The voice from within the broad, tusked mouth was low and hoarse. More of a growl. Where is it? Why? The eyes narrowed. Don't waste my time, Jedi, or you'll end up a corpse like your friend. He leaned down until she could actually feel the fetid stench of his breath seething through the slits of his nostrils. Where is it? It's in the primary incubation cultivator. Zoe sat up just enough to nod to the left and felt a bright sliver of spun glass shoot through her brachial plexus where the whippet had pressed his weight. Over there, behind you, but you can't just... Show me. Grabbing her arm, he dragged her behind him. Zoe caught a glimpse of the longbow and the quiver of arrows strapped across the muscled hump of his back, the tangles of its gray-golden mane swinging back and forth. Small bones, some decidedly humanoid, Mandibles and phalanges were tied and braided into the ends of its hair where they clicked against one another. Whippets, if she remembered her taxonomy right, were born predators. They lived to hunt and kill. Those venturing from their homeworld found good work as mercenaries and bounty hunters. Or worse. The whippet swung her forward by the neck and slammed her against the door of the incubator. Open it. You just have to push the airlock. Shoving her aside, he kept his right hand around her neck while his left hand gripped the latch and disabled the lock. The door opened and he pulled her in, keeping her at arm's length while groping around the incubator. Zoe tried to tilt her head upward to take the pressure off her throat, but he was holding her almost half a meter off the floor. She couldn't touch, even with her tiptoes. From the far corner, she heard an explosion of electronic components bursting apart. Something heavy toppled over and crashed to the ground. When the whippet's hand came back, his fingers were wrapped around the orchid's stalk, the flower already beginning to wilt in his grasp. What's wrong with it? The whippet asked. It's special, Zoe managed. It can't survive out of the incubator. It needs... What? He demanded, relaxing his grip just enough that she could finally slide down and touch the floor. She forced the word, hating herself for it. <laughs> Me. What? <laughs> if it's out of the incubator, I can't be more than a meter away from it. I need to be close, or else it loses its powers. Zoe looked out of the incubator back in the direction from which she'd come. Her gaze flashed across the lab floor to the body of Walbenis. No longer pinned to the tree, his corpse lay in a crumpled heap, one palm open as if grasping for some final unavailable lifeline that had failed to appear. The spear that had impaled him against the tree had been yanked free. Zoe had just enough time to wonder when the whippet had pulled it out 
when she saw the butt end of it flying downward toward her face, slamming her in the right temple and plunging her deep into a wide and starless night. Now, part three was insane. I am loving the journey through Red Harvest. This part had some mind-blowing moments, and now I feel like the supreme commander of the cosmos with a side of intergalactic swagger. But seriously, this story is epic. The world of Star Wars is like a masterpiece that takes storytelling to a whole new level. And this story is absolutely mind-beating. We are learning so much about the Old Republic and getting a glimpse into the motivation of these incredible characters. It's like discovering a hidden treasure trove of knowledge, where every twist and turn reveals something captivating. I can't help but to get lost in this epic adventure, pulling back the layers and unraveling the secrets that make this universe so awe-inspiring. In all honesty, I can't wait to see what's in store for us in the next part. But before we get to that, we have to get through the quote of this episode. And this quote comes to us from Nas Duro. He said, The universe is a dangerous place, but it's also a place of opportunity. Those who are willing to face the challenges will be rewarded. This quote holds such profound meaning because it captures the essence of the world we live in. Nas Duro reminds us that the world can indeed be an unpredictable place. We encounter obstacles, face adversities, and confront countless challenges that may seem impossible. It's a reflection of the reality we often find ourselves in. However, amidst the dangers of uncertainty, there is also great opportunity. The world is vast and brimming with possibilities for growth, achievement, and success. Nasdaro suggests that those who are willing to confront these challenges head on and to face the unknown will ultimately be rewarded. It's a powerful message about courage, resilience, and the willingness to take risk. By confronting these challenges head on, we open ourselves up to new experiences, knowledge, and opportunities that can shape our lives in remarkable ways. In a way, Nasdaro's words inspire us to overcome fears and step into the unknown with confidence. It's a call to seize the chances that come our way, to take calculated risks, and to trust in our abilities to navigate this treacherous path that we call life. Ultimately, it encourages us to embrace the journey, to embrace the inherent risk, to strive for personal growth and fulfillment. And I know that we could all do it. So I think that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed part three as much as I did. And I hope you will join me next time for more excitement and adventures in the Star Wars universe. Until then, may the force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pickfield Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and is distributed by Swaycast Network. Star Wars Red Harvest was read to you by Jeremy Owens. Sound design by Theodore Thompson. I'm your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah.